Giving you the sound of Ireland a little bit here on Alex Garrett Podcasting. It is a Saturday sit-down. I'm so glad to be with you once again. And, uh, you know, one thing I want to address, Radio Hope, Mike Myers, you got to listen back to his week. He's had his mom actually on the whole week. So Radio Hope, I hope you're doing well. I miss you on this pod. We'll get you back on for sure. But uh, some moving conversations with his mom, who is 90 years old, and you've heard her talk talked about on this podcast before and i just want to give you an update on why he hasn't really been uh, around so anyway i'm alex garrett and uh yes today i'm in the thinking of ireland because 12 years ago i woke up there uh in the midst of this beautiful two-week trip uh spearheaded by mama pat pat jordan who is uh, who ran and helped run the physically challenged Irish American youth team uh, on the American side. She would send over dis- disabled athletes over to Ireland to compete with the Irish athletes who were disabled and would come over here. So the final year, this happened to be the final year of the trip. I finally said, yes, I'll go. It was an incredible two weeks and a really spiritual two weeks as well. And a lot of family bonding with not only the kids I went to school with, Shane, Addie, and Brian, but those I met on the trip and elsewhere. So, with that 12 years in mind, I was having a synchronicity moment, as my stepdad would call it. I was having a moment of like putting a lot of things together um, before this podcast. By the way, Saturday shut down, we will have Daniel Ortner of the Pacific Legal Fund to discuss the legal implications of quarantine measures that even our own governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has taken. We'll get to that in a minute. But last night, Sportsnet New York, uh, home of the Mets, says, who's the most random Met player you could think of right now? Of course, anytime you ask of obscurity, I think of Joe McEwing. McEwing, who would wear 47 for the majority of his time as a Met, then he came back in 2003 wore the number 11, but but I think of McEwing because of his obscurity. I think of his amazing ability. Obscurity is in, he wasn't really well-known, although he should have been. He played every position for the Mets in the two, early 2000s, late 90s. And along with being an incredible player, you know, a, a, a solid guy, uh, Joe McEwing did something that... I don't know how many people know. I certainly didn't know it until I read. Uh, Teddy Greenstein of the Chicago Tribune wrote this column in 2018. A highlight from Joe McEwing's playing days, helping survivors on 9-11. And, you know, 25-game hitting streak, being on third base for McGuire's 70th homer in 1998. Well, to him, what stands out in the game of baseball was helping load trucks and deliver food as part of the Mets organization in 2001. And so, in addition to baseball, Joe McEwing was a man who gave back. He was as hard a worker off the field, you could tell, as he was on it, which made him be loved, actually, in the Mets organization with guys like Mike Piazza, uh, Al Leiter, Rick Reed, uh, Benny Agbayani, rave reviews of Joe McEwing himself. He played catcher, he went to left field, he played all these different positions 
also had a 25-game hit streak his rookie year as a Cardinal. And by the way, he didn't do too bad on the Mets either. He took Randy Johnson deep at Shea Stadium when Johnson was a Diamondback. And he was Irish-American. And I was thinking to myself, let me read up more about Joe McEwing. Turns out, he is part of the um, Irish-American Baseball Society. Now, I'm a big baseball fan, right? I actually wore the Yankees cap all over Ireland when I went 12 years ago. But I never knew that there was an Irish-American Baseball Society that includes so many prominent names. Dave O'Brien, Steve Garvey, Joe McEwing. You can actually watch... Three things we learned from Joe McEwing at the Irish Mayor. He just was in the society last year. And the Irish American Baseball Society promotes the game of baseball in Ireland and celebrates the contributions of Irish Americans to baseball players uh, in America. The IABS is a nonprofit subsidiary of the Baseball United Foundation. Our members include players and coaches at all levels of amateur and professional baseball, as well as MLB broadcasters, journalists, and executives, and fans like you. IABS is a nonprofit subsidiary of Baseball Foundation, Federal Tax ID 20462322. So this is a society, and you can find out more at irishbaseball.org. But up until now, and I've followed baseball, and I've followed sort of the Irish community a lot more over the last few years since the trip to Ireland, that I never knew this existed, and so thank God I found it today. And so McEwing is part of the society. And where this gets even more interesting today is 21 years ago, July 18th, 1999, David Cohn, 27 up, 27 down, immort- baseball immortality happened as John Sterling called it. And it was through rain delays. And it was on Yogi Bear Day. Yogi's return to the Bronx. Don Larson throwing that first pitch to Yogi behind the plate as if it was 1956 all over again. And David Cohen is also Irish. And he, just a couple, just six years ago, was inducted into the Irish American Baseball Hall of fame. You want to know more about them? IrishBaseballHall.net And I remember in the parking lot of St. Joe's uh, School for the Deaf in Ireland, I remember playing some ball in that yard too. So I just thought, how interesting is it? I'm Irish. I love my Irish heritage. Um, I think... Uh, I've loved it a little too much at times. In fact, the fact that I'm able to be on this podcast 12 years later after being in Ireland is God's blessing to me right now. And I want to share that to you guys. So thank God for your grace to have me here today to discuss all this. And while the physically challenged Irish American youth team is no longer, I would consider, I would ask you to consider looking up Nassau County Victory Challenge, which is the newer version of the Empire State Games for the Physically Challenged. And I would just um, implore you to help out if you can during this time. I know it's crazy, but worth the contribution, worth helping out 
Susan Maxwell, and the Nassau County Victory Challenge, which is where all of this trip idea started, to be honest. And so for Irish Americans, both disabled base and, and, and baseball players to be recognized in America is so cool, especially talking about this in the 30th year of the ADA. Amazing times had um, a physical challenge. Irish American youth team really inspired those who wanted to be independent, to be independent, to live on their own, to enjoy their time in Ireland with supervision, sure, but also just being yourself. And I think that's what the ADA month is, to inspire others to be themselves and live out their disability, live out God's purpose for them, God's image that they made them in daily. And I am proud to say on this podcast, on this vlog, I am Irish American and I'm so proud of it and that there are outlets that honor Irish Americans, the contributors to the society on the diamond as well. And so with that, alex.garrett21 at yahoo.com is my email. alex.garrett at yahoo.com is my email. Highly want you to check out the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame. Highly want you to check out the Irish base, uh, American Baseball Society. And check out the Nassau County Victory Challenge. In some way, they're all related in my brain. And I just want to let you know of that relatedness. And now, without further ado, I would like to take us to Mr. Uh, Daniel Ortner of the Pacific Legal Fund, who talks about this um, idea that quarantining is going too far, quarantine measures is going too far, maybe even violating the Constitution. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Well, welcome back into Alex Garrett Podcasting, and today... We are going to be talking with Daniel Ortner. He is the an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Remember, we've had them on before um, to, to discuss openings versus uh, if they were legally closing down businesses or illegally during the lockdowns, how that went. Well, now we're dealing with extended quarantine. And, uh, well, Daniel, here in New York, you guys say what Cuomo is doing is illegally is illegal, like you cannot quarantine or, or force that on 22 states? What's going on with our state specifically here in New York? Yeah, so Governor Cuomo a couple of weeks ago announced, along with some other governors, that, that uh, anyone coming to New York from what they call a hotspot, uh, which now includes 22 states, uh, has to quarantine uh, for two weeks. And just uh, last week, Governor Cuomo announced that they're going to be enforcing um, this with uh, potential fines. They're going to require people who come in on a flight to fill out a contact form of where they're going to be uh, doing their quarantine and they're going to uh, fine them uh, thousands of dollars if they, they either don't fill the form out or don't comply. Uh, so th- that is um, deeply problematic. It, it's unlawful under state law in, mo- in New York and in these other states and also uh, potentially unconstitutional. And so how do we New Yorkers fight that? How are you guys fighting this? Well, right now, I think the biggest thing is to speak out and say this is unlawful. Uh, you know, the ironic thing uh, is at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, the state of Maine, tried to do something similar to New York, New York residents along with some other states. And Governor Cuomo actually threatened to sue the state of Maine and said, this is unconstitutional. This violates the rights of New Yorkers. Uh, so he was right then. He's wrong now to do the same thing 
uh, now that the uh, situation has changed a little bit. Um, and I think people need to speak out uh, and say this is unlawful. They say that you know, speak out about their stories about how this is burdening them. Uh, people that are coming to states like New York for for family events, for work, for to take the bar exam at some point, uh, all you know, all, all these kinds of events that people are coming to the state for, um, that this really burdens them. It makes it impossible for them uh, to uh, to to uh, travel and to uh, engage in business and commerce in the state of New York. And you know, speaking out about that is going to, I think, be the biggest actually thing they can do to change it. Uh, Daniel Ortner is who we're talking with. Daniel, very um, interesting. But I, I want to push back a little bit because I feel like they do have to quarantine, though, if they're coming from other states that have a hotspot. So how can we make sure they're doing it legally, I guess, is my, my next question. Well, so part of the problem with the, the quarantine is you know, quarantines are meant to be for people that are reasonably suspicious. You can reasonably have a suspicion that they have a disease. You can't do that for a whole state. Uh, like some of the states on the list, like Iowa and North Carolina, in Iowa, um, of active cases, there's about one in 400 people of the state of Iowa uh, has an active case of the coronavirus. That's far less than in the state of New York, actually, right now. Uh, and that's active cases, which is defined pretty broadly to mean just anyone who's not died or recovered fully from the disease. So really, the real numbers of people that are you know, dangerous right now is going to be far less than that. So to say that every single person coming from a state like Iowa has to quarantine is, is the problem. Um, individuals are entitled to due process uh, when their rights are being infringed upon. To be told, you have to go, to, go and can't leave a house for 14 days is a major infringement on your your right to uh, right, you know, on your rights, and so the the state has to offer some kind of due process. They have to allow people to contest um, that they are infected. Uh, a, a good solution would be some states have done this, where they say, well, you can either do this quarantine or you can take a, a test to show you're negative when you arrived in the state or right before you arrived in the state. That's a much less restrictive option that still protects uh, the people of New York. Um, because it allows people to, to say, look, I can show that I am not positive, And then there's no suspicion then for that they are. It's, it is not reasonable to suspect that they are going to ha- have the disease if they test negative right when they arrive to the state. So that would be a much better alternative. Daniel, uh, I got to say, though, it's just I would say if it's becoming illegal, why don't we do temperature checks at the airport? Would that be a better way? than to just say you would just stay home for 14 days. That way we have a concrete whether this, these people do or do not have some well, symptoms. You, you can't uh, stop people from coming if they refuse to get their temperature checked. I think, you you know, the best best choice would be to give people a choice, uh, an option to say, you know, you can do this 14-day option of quarantining or you can provide a, a coronavirus test that's negative or you can do a temperature check. Like you give people the most op- the options so you're not um, infringing on people's uh, freedom and people's ability to, to free movement. Um, the, in the Constitution, there's a right to travel uh, because uh, you know in the it, before the Constitution was ratified during the Articles of Confederation, states had rivalries with each other. They put up tariffs. They put up barriers on on, on uh, mobility and access. And so the the founders said, no, we don't want this anymore. The Constitution set allows for equal uh, treatment and, and mobility between the states. People can come and go and engage in commerce freely. And so these laws uh, infringe on that right. And so they're going to be viewed with a lot of suspicion in the courts um, because, because they infringe on those rights. Daniel, obviously you guys have been researching this and observing it, but have you had any cases from New York where you're seeing that this is becoming an issue? 
There is a there was a, a recent law, a lawsuit uh, filed uh, very early when they announced this policy uh, that uh, I, I don't know the stat the current status of that case. It's not one of our cases. We're not involved with it. But there was a lawsuit filed. There have been lawsuits in other cases uh, across the country. Um, in Kentucky, there was a, a decision uh, where a, a similar policy early in the pandemic was struck down by a, a federal judge. They ruled that it was unconstitutional. Uh, Kentucky was putting uh, police officers at the border, uh, checking temperature and, not, and and restricting access. And he said, no, that is unconstitutional to do that. Uh, so th- there are have been courts that have uh, just, you know, just since the pandemic have just looked at the same question and have ruled that uh, these kind of policies are unconstitutional. Well, I want to ask about a bigger question then, because this quarantine, I know we had lawsuits early on in March when even the quarantine itself here in New York was imposed. So have you found the governor breaking any other constitutional rights during this whole time of lockdown? Absolutely. You know, the governors all across the country, I think are, are you know, the way they've responded to the pandemic has been very problematic. Uh, the big, biggest problem really is that who is supposed to make law and rules in uh, states in this country? It's supposed to be the legislator, uh, the representatives of the people that are voted in to make law and make and to enact policy. And instead, governors throughout most of the country, including New York, have been essentially running the, the economies of those states by fiat. They've been deciding who gets to open, who gets to close. Uh, they've been doing so with l- no procedural protections for individuals. Uh, in, you know, usually if, if an l- agency of the state wants to make a rule, they have to go through some process to get public comment, to uh, seek uh, ne- uh, contrary opinions and respond to them. None of that's happening during the coronavirus. And so the kind of fundamental checks on the powers of government have uh, been flaunted or ignored. Uh, that's a serious problem uh, throughout the country. Uh, we are currently litigating a couple of cases, one in Connecticut uh, over the governor's shutdown orders. We're representing a, a nail salon, Roxy Nails Design uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, arguing that the governor's shutdown orders there violate the separation of powers in the state's constitution. And the same thing could be said about New York as well. Uh, and really most states in the country, it, it is a serious problem that's ongoing. And the, the longer the pandemic goes on, the more troubling that is that we have for, for months on end, uh, governors operating without legislative accountability, without uh, feedback from the people. Uh, it, it, it's really, you know, the longer it's it goes draconian. on, let's just call it what it is. It's draconian. And some people would say those are great measures. And what would you say to those people that say these measures are are perfectly fine? Like it's not perfectly fine, right? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah I think you know, substantively, it's a lot. There's a lot of problems with shutting down, especially shutting down businesses. You know, people are going bankrupt. People are losing their their um, their ability to make a living. Uh, it's a serious problem, and the governor governments should be as governors should be as wary as possible of doing that. Uh, you know, they, they should be doing that as an absolute last resort, uh, not engaging in month, months on end of shutting down businesses. Uh, and then secondly, you know, even if the policy is right, it matters who does it and how it's decided. Uh, the separation of powers protects individuals from the government making these arbitrary decisions. Uh, if you had to have a majority of the state legislature voting on something, then there would be a lot of, of a more robust debate about whether these measures are justified. Uh, and so the sh- it would shift uh, in the debate. People would be able to have more of an input in what happened. Uh, when governors are doing it, they're do- able to do it via-, via fiat without any real accountability. Do you think we're going to see this problem now with the indoor versus outdoor dining differentiation, the non-indoor? Have you seen any lawsuits and problems with that, not even allowing indoor f- festivities mm-hmm. right now? 
Yeah, there have been lawsuits across the country uh, over that uh, question of indoor versus, you know, can you ban, can you bar restaurants from being able to be in, uh, have indoor uh, activities or events? I think, you know, courts tend to be very deferential when it comes to the, the specifics of emergency uh, policies and responses. We would argue that they, they shouldn't be as deferential when it's done by executive order, uh, because the legislator is the one that should be holding this power to make these health and safety decisions, not not governors or executive agencies. Um, but courts have, have been very deferential, and so a lot of these cases have been a very uphill battle for the, the owners. When they have succeeded is when they've been able to show that what's happening is arbitrary. They're being treated differently than people that are like them for no reason whatsoever. So there were a lot of cases involving churches, for instance, um, early in the shutdown, where they were being shut down and told you can't even have drive-through uh, church services. Uh, when you know liquor stores could operate or drive-throughs, um, fast food restaurants, and so courts uh, said that is arbitrary. Um, that violates um, rights, uh, the right of these businesses, and the rights, the right of uh, the First Amendment rights of uh, religious establishments. So that is really when people have have won uh, these kind of challenges has been when they've been able to show arbitrariness in the treatment uh, that they've been given. Daniel Lortner, uh, tell us about a little bit more about Pacific Legal Foundation. What What is your existence? What's your mission over there? So the Pacific Legal Foundation is a public interest law firm, and that means we fight for constitutional rights. We represent people uh, pro bono without charge uh, to help vindicate their constitutional rights. Uh, we fight for uh, individual liberty, uh, for uh, property rights, for the separation of powers, for free speech, uh, for uh, economic liberty and you know, the right to earn a living. Uh, we fight on behalf of individuals against the government to help them push back when the government overreaches and to help them win. Uh, and we have an unmatched record at the U.S. Supreme Court. We've had 12 victories at the U.S. Supreme Court over the years. Uh, we are uh, you know, fighting coast to coast uh, for individual liberty. And that is such a beautiful thing. And um, how many cases now during this whole lockdown have you guys been dealing with? So in regard to the, the lockdown law, with lawsuits, we right now just have, have a, a case, the case in Connecticut that I mentioned involving the um, nail salon, and we have a case in California involving the Judicial Council of California, which announced uh, that you know, without any law saying they could do so or even rule for anything from the governor, they're just not going to listen to eviction cases uh, at all, uh, just not put them on the calendar. Uh, and so we're fight, fighting in California against that. Uh, we've uh, also we've written letters and op-eds about a lot of other situations in other states, and we're looking uh, for additional uh, opportunities to continue to litigate in other states on, on this issue as well. All right, uh, Daniel, I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, so the, the other thing that I'm having trouble with is the nursing home situation. Have you found any laws being broken there too? Uh, to be honest, I haven't followed the nursing home situation closely. We have, that's not something that's been on our radar to, to follow, to, to comment on. Well, that, that's fair enough. So wh where can our focus be as we move forward and how can we be vigilant on defending our civil liberties, defending our businesses during this time? Yeah. I think you know, individual citizens need, need to be willing to speak out. Uh, early on in the pandemic in New York, New York City, for instance, uh, Gov uh, Mayor de Blasio tried to shut down protests and say, you, you know, you can't protest against the shutdowns. That uh, is deeply troubling. People should be able to speak out. Uh, they should you know, do so as safely as possible, but they should speak out and have their voices heard. Uh, people shouldn't be silent when their rights are being violated. You know, writing uh, op-eds and letters to the editor and speaking out and sharing their stories is really powerful. Uh, it really does have an effect on, on government um, 
officials and what they do. Uh, it does lead them to change policies. Uh, so speak out, uh, reach out to groups like Pacific Legal Foundation who are fighting back uh, to you know, lend your voice to the work we're doing. Uh, you know, people should just be willing to defend their rights uh, not be shy about them. They have a right uh, to to freedom, to to earn a living, to free movement, uh, and limitations on those rights have to be uh, justified. Uh, governments have to justify what they're doing, uh, and that means you know, to the courts, but also to the people. Daniel, do you support the idea that if these cities want federal funding, they shouldn't be getting it because of the chaos and destruction they've caused in their own towns? Hmm. You know, I, I don't. I don't really have a strong opinion on on how whether states what what limitations should be put on federal governments. You know, giving federal uh, funds to states. I think the generally the federal funding should be re- reduced. You know, the federal government does too much. States should have more autonomy uh, to make decisions without federal government uh, trying to control everything they do. I'm a believer in federalism. The idea that states, you know, should be laboratories for ideas to develop instead of the federal government trying to control everything. So, as a general matter, I'm, I'm skeptical when the government, federal government wants to use its power of the purse to try and coerce states to do what it wants. So that, that's my kind of general position, but I don't have any specific thoughts on the you know, money related to the shutdown. Well, the interesting thing about the protests is that they didn't allow anti-lockdown. They didn't want that, but they did want the other, you know, social justice protests. And if a business was interrupted by that, don't you think, do they have a full right to sue the city if their business was interrupted by these riots? Uh, well, well, generally, well, first of all, I'd say you know, it's better late than never that states are allowing protests right now. You know, it was wrong uh, in March or April or May to, to stop anti-shutdown protests. Uh, it is good that they're allowing protests now. Hopefully that won't change uh, based on what, what the message is uh, of the speakers. You know, we should be allowing protests. Protesting sure. is a fundamental constitutional right. It needs to be protected. Uh, Cities, you know, when, when their protests have the right to, you know, protect the ability of these speakers' right to speak, but also the right to, the ability, they have the, the obligation to protect property owners and others from destruction and, and damage. So they, they should be doing so. Uh, I, I don't know if, you know, I mean, if there's a, maybe if there's a case where a city was particularly negligent or particularly failed to act, there might be room for a private lawsuit to, to recover damages. I think that would be a very state specific question. For the state law, uh, you know what what immunity does the government have for for those kind of damages? Uh, but generally, you know, it is a balance. But the, but the states have an obligation to protect the right to speak, and the obligation to protect private property. Um, and these things have to be balanced, even in the pandemic. And, and I think during... here in New York, you actually had a private property case. Remember, it was North Carolina, one of them that you guys talked with me about a while ago, and and uh, you guys helped win actually. Uh huh. I, I don't know which case you're you're thinking of in particular, but. You know, we're, we're, I mean, property rights is one of our key areas. We're constantly fighting for, you know, for property rights and property owners. Um, you know, and the government, you know, one of our big initiatives, for instance, is to end home equity theft, where governments, you know, if you uh, underpay your taxes by a hundred dollars, they'll come and take your whole property and not give you back any of the proceeds at all. You know, steal uh, equity. Uh, that, That's too crazy and, to know, believe. That is unbelievable, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's it is really hard hard to believe, and it is happening across the country for you know underpayments, sixty dollars, a hundred dollars. If you don't pay that uh, accidentally, uh, they'll come and take your property and not not pay, not give you back uh, the the excess. You know, they'll keep everything, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in excess profits, and it is hard to believe. It should be unlawful. We're fighting coast to coast to, to end home equity theft. That's one of our big uh, property rights initiatives. 
Well, and hopefully our homes are safe. Uh, it, yeah, hopefully our homes continue to be safe first in the community and from, from government intrusion. Uh, this lockdown could be coming again. And what can people do to better prepare themselves than they didn't do in March, if you're a business owner particularly? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, now we know much more about the coronavirus than we did back in March. One thing that we know now is, for instance, outdoor uh, activities are almost always going to be harmless. You know, you can do things outdoors uh, without a lot of risk of spreading the disease. Uh, so one thing, you know, is happening right now in California that we're involved with is, you know, the governor Newsom in California just announced that, you know, 30 counties are going to be closing a whole bunch of businesses, including hair and nail salons. Um, and he, but he left open the possibility for outdoor uh hair services to be done. Uh, and then the Board of Cosmetology said, no, we, we interpret our rules really narrowly. You cannot go outside and do anything outside because it's outside of your establishment. Uh, so we just wrote a letter to the governor yesterday urging him to to or, or to the board and to the governor saying, change this. This, does, this hurts small businesses. So I think businesses need to be flexible. They need to try to get whatever uh, permissions or exceptions they can uh, to operate to the best of their ability. And then it, they need to fight back uh, and reach out to groups like Pacific Legal Foundation um, and others that are leading the fight against these kinds of shutdown orders. But they, you know, people need flexibility. Uh, hopefully states are gonna offer the most, as much flexibility as possible so they can uh, stay open to the best of their ability and uh, keep, you know, keep earning a living. So, you know, it's, um, it is amazing how they just, uh, they feel like they can lock down anything they, they want. And I'm glad these business owners are fighting. Now, one other thing I will tell you is on July 4th, when we were celebrating our freedoms, I thought of the businesses that were not able to celebrate their freedom and not able to open. And I thought, what a contrast, right? And so that kind of day, Independence Day, should motivate us to help our business owners become open again and empower them to be open, empower the states to open up businesses again, um, especially since we celebrate Independence Day, we should celebrate the independence of the business, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think that that's right. The states, you know, unfortunately, are starting to lock down again now, uh, really sometimes without good justification for it. Uh, you know, again, California, you know, uh, Governor Newsom announced uh, that all restaurants all across the state had to close for indoor services, even though only some counties are having, you know, a rise in cases. He just said, well, we don't want anyone to be doing this because it's dangerous. You know, restaurant owners, uh, nail salons, hair salons, all these businesses are doing the best they can to keep people safe. Uh, they're uh, abiding with safety precautions. You know, I've been to, went to a couple of restaurants uh, in the past couple of months where, you know, they're, they're uh, seating people, tables apart. Uh, the staff's wearing masks. They're sanitizing everything they can. You know, they are doing the best they can to keep people safe. And we should allow them to keep doing that and to stay open um, and to make a living. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because the social responsibility has sort of been lost here, right? So instead of blaming the customer that may not have protected themselves fully, we're blaming the bar. And it's like, it's not the bar owner's fault that a lot of people got sick at their place. It's probably the people's fault. So not that you can sue for that, but it almost feels libelous to put all the blame on the bars and the business owners. Yeah, I mean, it really is irresponsible, um, demonizing business owners. Uh, the, the the worst example of this was um, a Again, Governor Newsom and also I think Governor Cuomo did this in New York as well, uh, targeting nail salons and blaming them for uh, the spread of the disease uh, when there was no evidence for it. You know, Governor Newsom made up a, a false account that the first case in California was uh, caused by a nail salon and then later had to backtrack and say that's just not true. Uh, demonizing small businesses 
you know, often these businesses are run by uh, immigrants, by uh, people that are really trying to start a living uh, and, and live the American dream. And to demonize them is, is deeply uh, disturbing and problematic. You know, they are doing the best they can for themselves and for their employees. Um, they should be celebrated, not, not criticized or vilified. Um, yeah. And I, I got to ask, it's outlandish, but can they sue the governor for libel? I mean, is there a possibility of that? It'd be very unlikely uh, if you're just, uh, you know, if all that was said was the general thing about a business category, I think it'd be very unlikely uh, if they you know, said, spoke about a particular business, then maybe it's possible. I, I, I would be, I would be skeptical of a libel. I would, I would think it's very unlikely that one could, could sue for libel unless there was something you know, very specific said about your business, not just a category of businesses. And by the way, while, while we're talking about freedoms, I'm not a total fan of the Confederate flag, to be honest with you. But when you see businesses banned, when you see all of this happening, um, have there been any challenges to this uh, kind of banning and, and regu- you know, orders to ban? Not so much from the government, but from uh, companies. I don't know. Have you seen any lawsuits with that? Well, important, I think, point is to, to say that uh, the First Amendment protects against government action. So if a private business wants to ban uh, someone from, uh, you know, expressing a viewpoint or uh, doing something that, that they're totally allowed to do that. That is not a first amendment issue. People try to make it a first amendment issue, but it, it, it's not, uh, you know, it, it is disturbing when we have this kind of cancel culture or people being silenced. I think that it's disturbing. It, it's uh, contrary to, to the kind of ideal of the first amendment, the spirit of it, but it's not unlawful because they're private entities, private businesses, and they can uh, do what they want to uh, without infringing on the first amendment. Could we see any government intrusion on that? I mean, uh, on the cancel culture or, or have we? All- I, I, mean, I would say a very, I'd be very, very skeptical of any effort for the government to force private companies to do something they don't want to do, uh, to, to uh, allow people you know, to, to express a viewpoint. Uh, you know, the, the property owners or the, the business owners have their own First Amendment rights uh, and to tell them, you know, you, you can't uh, exercise your right to exclude someone you disagree with uh, would be a First Amendment violation in and of itself. So I would say to no. To the nth degree. <laughs> to the nth degree. Yeah, well, the government should lay off businesses. Um, you know, the, anything the government would do there would make things worse rather than better. I, I don't trust government bureaucrats to make decisions over what speech is allowed, over uh, who can talk and who can't talk, and who can exercise their First Amendment rights. Daniel, I, I love this conversation. And I got to ask you one other thing. The minority business owners, they've been hit hard with some of the businesses being destroyed in riots. They've been hit hard. Uh, in general during this. Have you found them reaching out to PLF to get help as well? And are we really kind of over, you know, leaving them in the in the dust, so to speak, um, yeah. when it comes to minority business owners? I mean, minority business owners are the hardest hit in many ways because they're often small business owners. That they have, you know, they can't handle being shut down for three months. Uh, we're representing uh, Luis Ramirez uh, the, in, in Connecticut, the owner of Roxy Nails Design, and he's, you know, a small business owner and a, a Hispanic uh, business owner. Uh, who you know really is uh, you know made, living the dream, American dream of starting his own business? It was you know hard he, uh, when he started it. It's, he's been fighting for years to keep his business going and and grow it. And the shutdown was absolutely devastating to him. Uh, you know, completely uh, decimated his finances. Uh, and uh, it, it you know it, it it these I think governments are not thinking adequately about the impact this is having on minorities uh, that are uh, in these positions or, or anyone who's a small business. And by the way, they're the same people that these people, that these Democrats specifically are fighting for the very 
rights of. And it's like, well, you got to think of the minority business owner too. Um, you don't have to weigh in on that commentary. That's just my, my personal opinion. Uh, anyway, Daniel, this, this has been great. And for those who can survive, I feel like PLF Pacific Legal Foundation also gives great advice. So for those who are weathering the storm, what's your advice to them and how have we seen businesses be able to survive? Because there have been survivals through this whole lockdown. And I was saying like people, businesses you know, need to be as flexible as possible. Uh, that's hard to ask people to do, but they need to you know, try to be as flexible as possible, stand up for their rights, uh, fight back when there's overreach, reach out to groups like Pacific Legal Foundation or other uh, public interest groups fighting um, uh, on this issue uh, and defend their rights and uh, you know, really do the, do the best they can to, to, stay open, do the, do whatever they're allowed to do to, to, to support themselves and their employees and their families. Where can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Uh, where can uh, so our web, Pacific Legal's website is specificlegal.org. And then I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And so is Pacific Legal. Uh, we're all, all on all those platforms. Well, is there a handle that people might be able to reach you at that way? I sure. Can... Um, my Twitter is at, at dortner one is my twit my Twitter handle, I believe. <laughs> I don't yeah, at D Ortner one. Uh Pacific Legals is at Pacific Legal um on Twitter. And um yeah, on, on, you can find oh. that also on our website. Um we have the all the Twitter uh posts. Uh the oh, we you know we, we linked our social media accounts on there as well. So PacificLegal.org is the website and yeah like I said Twitter at Pacific Legal. Mine is at D Ortner one uh, and you can find us on there as well. Hey guys, I like that we're able to have this connection from New York to California, coast to coast, because yep. our rights are truly coast to coast. So thanks for defending them. Well, thanks thanks for having me and for talking about these important issues. This has been the Saturday Sit Down on Alex Garrett Podcasting.